Well, good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here again with you and to see many of you folks that uh, we haven't seen in quite some time. And then, of course, always great to meet new folks as well. Uh, just very quickly here, Janice and I, my wife and I, we're with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. It's a ministry that endeavors to share the gospel uh, with Jewish people. And, of course, the Lord brings other people into our midst, and so we seek to be faithful to share the gospel as well. And uh, we have a magazine called Israel My Glory. Some of you are receiving it, but let me encourage you, those who are not familiar, we have a number of copies back there. Avail yourself to a copy. They're free. And then let me encourage you to sign up and get a one-year free subscription to Israel My Glory. Uh, I have the privilege of writing. I guess the editors feel that uh, I'm allowed to abuse the readership every now and then by publishing some of my articles here. But uh, this is a magazine that uh, is worldwide. We're in every continent. Uh, we, have, uh, we don't have a million subscribers yet, but we have a million readership. Uh, so the word is getting out there. So avail yourself to Israel my glory. Now, we're going to be talking about the uh, Day of Atonement, Messiah in the Day of Atonement. Last week, uh, last Friday, 10 days before, before this day here, was a, uh, a rabbinical holiday that they call Rosh Hashanah. However, the Bible never calls that Rosh Hashanah. It's referred to as the day of blowing the trumpet or the shofar. There isn't a whole lot of pageantry and ceremony attached to the blowing of the shofar, but what it does is this. It sounds an alarm that the day of atonement was coming, a day of reckoning. And so 10 days ago, the shofar was blown. In biblical times, they did that. And they had 10 days to kind of have think about their relationship with the Lord and with one another. And so then this day would come, and they could then observe or appreciate what the Lord is going to do on this day. So I'm going to blow the shofar here, okay? I, you can tell I've blown this a lot, and that's why I lost my hair here, but uh, <laughs> here we go. And now let's transport ourselves back to the wilderness period. The Day of Atonement, called in Hebrew Yom HaKippur, was considered to be the most holy day of the Hebrew calendar. It was the day when atonement was made for the sins of the priests, the people, and the cleansing of the tabernacle.
Preparations began early in the day. Everything needed to be ready and at hand since this special ceremony was carried out by the high priest alone. On all other days, the high priest wore his full ceremonial dress made up of eight separate pieces of clothing which distinguished him from other priests. But on the Day of Atonement, he removed the decorative clothing and wore only the four white linen garments of a priest. This expression of humility further illustrated the fact that this day was different. When the high priest was ready to officiate, everyone, including the other priests, left the tabernacle and courtyard area. The people realized that for the whole nation of Israel to receive the benefits of the ceremony, it had to be performed through the ministry of their highest anointed individual and him alone. Although the people were not permitted to enter the tabernacle courtyard, they gathered at the gate to catch a glimpse of what was happening. There was a certain anticipation in the air on this day of atonement. It marked a new beginning for each person as past sins were forgiven through the shedding of the blood of the sacrifice. The Day of Atonement ceremony was carried out with care and precision. Each aspect was performed with the utmost reverence according to God's specific instructions. The washing of both the hands and feet, illustrating spiritual cleansing, was commanded by God. This physical and spiritual cleansing was repeated several times throughout the day. Once cleansed, the high priest went to the gate to receive the animals required for the sacrifices, a bullock, two goats, and a ram. These animals were special, carefully selected for their healthy and unblemished condition. While today it may seem a cruel concept to use a fine animal for a sacrifice, this is clearly what God prescribed and commanded. Blood sacrifices illustrated a key principle which God wanted his people to understand. He surely created these particular animals for this important purpose, and they glorified and pleased him in offering their lives for the life of the nation of Israel. Two nearly identical sacrifice rituals were performed one after the other. The first was a bullock to make atonement for the sins of the high priest and the priesthood. The second was one of the goats to make atonement for the sins of the whole nation of Israel. Blood from the animal was caught in a copper bowl and set aside to be used for sprinkling and pouring in the ceremony. After the blood was collected, re-cleansing at the labor was required. The high priest would then take hot coals from the brazen altar and place them on the incense altar in the holy place. The sweet aroma from the burning incense, representing the prayers of the nation of Israel, filled the air and rose upward as the high priest offered prayers to God. The high priest would have recited several selections from a collection of 18 ancient prayers, such as, Hear our voice, O Lord, our God, and spare us, and show mercy upon us, and accept in mercy and in grace our prayer, for thou art a God who hearest prayer and supplication. 
Let us not return empty, O our King, from before thy face. For thou, Lord, in mercy, hearest the prayers of thy people Israel. Blessed by the Lord who heareth prayer. Hearing the high priest praying, the people would join their hearts in prayer, asking God to forgive their sins and accept the atonement sacrifice. Forgive us, our Father, for we have sinned. Pardon us, our King, for we have transgressed. For thou pardonest and forgivest. Blessed by the gracious Lord who multiplieth forgiveness. After cleansing again at the labor, the most critical part of the ceremony began. Utilizing the blood caught in the copper bowl, the high priest entered the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was the chamber of the tabernacle where the Shekinah glory of God dwelled. Entering this area during the ceremony was a fearsome responsibility. Inside the Holy of Holies, the high priest sprinkled the blood upward once on the mercy seat and then seven times before the Ark of the Covenant. He then left the Holy of Holies by backing out, never turning around and never looking directly at the Ark or the mercy seat. Since the high priest had removed his garments with the bells, the people waited anxiously outside, not knowing whether the sacrifice was accepted or even if the high priest was still alive. When he finally emerged into the outer court, the people would have undoubtedly rejoiced to see him. After recleansing at the labor, the high priest entered the holy place and sprinkled the blood upward once onto the curtain or veil that separated the chambers and then seven times on the ground before it. The high priest would then exit the holy place and re-cleanse at the labor. After combining the blood of the bullock and goat, he sprinkled the blood on the horns of the incense altar and on the horns of the brazen altar. The sprinkling of the combined blood was used to cleanse or purify the tabernacle. The high priest then poured out the remaining blood at the base of the altar. The next stage of the ceremony was designed to illustrate how God viewed the sins of the nation now that the sacrifice had been accepted. By placing his hands on the head of the living goat, the high priest would impute or transfer the sins of the nation to the goat. The goat, bearing the sin and the judgment of the nation, was then led out of the camp into the wilderness and it was customary for the people to jeer at the goat as it was led away. In fact, the term scapegoat comes from this ancient ritual. The final stage of the ceremony was the burnt offering to consecrate or dedicate the entire nation of Israel to God. By this time, nightfall had come over the land, and the high priest would have changed back into full ceremonial dress. For this part of the ceremony, the other priests and even the people were permitted to enter the courtyard. The sacrifice was that of a ram. After the high priest had slain the ram, another priest would sprinkle the blood on the horns of the brazen altar. The high priest would then ascend the ramp to the altar and reverently place the ram on the fire. This was an offering of consecration. Here at the end of the day, with the atonement complete, the people reflected their appreciation to God by dedicating themselves through the sacrifice wholly to God and to his service.
Since the Day of Atonement was regarded as a Sabbath day, the high priest, along with the other priests, entered the holy place to eat and drink from the table of showbread as commanded by God in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 8 and 9. Every Sabbath he shall set in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be Aaron's and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place. the ceremony, the high priest would return to the tabernacle courtyard and pronounce the ancient benediction found in Numbers chapter 6 verses 24 through 26. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. With the smoke of the dedication offering still rising in the night sky, the high priest led the people out into the camp, rejoicing in the acceptance of the atonement and the peace of God. Uh, let me just give you some uh, basic understanding. What you just saw there was a reenactment of just one chapter out of the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, where the Day of Atonement is presented to us. I think you'll notice, if you could just recall some of the things that you saw, that the Day of Atonement was observed in three stages. You had the first stage, which involved the sacrifice. The second stage dealt with the scapegoat. And then the third stage, the final stage, dealt with the burnt offering. So... Just to kind of put us in the sense of the priest here, here is the high priest. This is how I looked after a couple of years. <laughs> no, no, but uh, that is the role of the high priest as he would minister on that day. Now, normally he wore the beautiful garments that were part of his office, but on this day, he was not to wear those beautiful, ostentatious garments, but rather the simple garments of a priest. Because though he was officiating the, uh, he was the only one to officiate the special sacrifice on this day, uh, and still had the office of a high priest, he himself needed atonement because he was, what, mortal. He had his active sin nature. And so he had to go in to make, he had to sacrifice in his own behalf and behalf of the priesthood and then bring that into the Holy of Holies, come out, and then he offered the sacrifice in behalf of the people. And then he would go back into the Holy of Holies. So the Bible says that he entered in once, but that was a reference to just the day. He would go in there at least two, three times, but only on that day. And so... If I can have my brother high priest here, James, if you could come and help me here. 
At the end of the day, he then would uh, let's turn this around. Okay, here we go. Let me hold this part here. Okay, just maybe bring it down here. This is what's tricky about the whole thing here. All right. Okay, that's good. Does he look familiar? <laughs> the high priest came alive. Look at that. <laughs> I remember when I was, I used to do this live. I used to dress up and then I used to convert the entire platform with the furnishings of the tabernacle and transport you back in and out. Uh, but then one day I saw him sitting there and immediately I said, ah, my high priest, there he is. And so he was gracious enough to model for me and to get into the garments, and, uh, and it's a real pleasure. And then, of course, he, when I see him from time to time in various other meetings, he would say, where have I been these days? <laughs> and I said, well, I took you here, I took you there, and so it is great. All right, in our Bible study time here, I want to look at three particular passages. Let me give you the... The, uh, the location, and then as we get to it, I'll give you the specific address, okay? But the first passage is Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. Oh, I already gave you the address, but 17, Leviticus 17. And then we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 9. So you may want to just kind of be ready there. Hebrews chapter 9 in the New Covenant or the New Testament. And then we're going to go to the Gospel of John, okay, chapter 1. John chapter 1. Now, they, uh, when I used to do this presentation live in many of uh, fellowships around the country and even outside the country, um, the church was always encouraged to invite people, especially Jewish people, to, you know, to see this because it's to them that they would have an appreciation. And uh, on this one occasion, this uh, one Jewish guest came and he went and saw me do the whole presentation. Then afterwards, he was in the back in the foyer while I was in the front talking with other people. And um, apparently he was challenging that everything that he had seen me do was all wrong. It was all wrong. Oh, <laughs> And so I asked, I said, well, can he come and, to me here and show me where I was wrong? I'm always open, you know, to, to learn more if I did something wrong. So he came, and he, he, was, he was nice, but he says, I asked him, where was I wrong? He goes, well, we don't do this anymore. We don't sacrifice. We don't shed blood. You guys, I always like to, you Christians always like to talk about blood. We don't do that. We have a nice, clean religion. No blood, no ceremony, no sacrifice. We have a beautiful ceremony, you know, prayers and you know, chanting and cantoral things. So we don't do that. And, you know, and I said, well, wait a minute. Well, that's my whole point. Why don't you do that anymore? And then, of course, I assured him I didn't make it up. You know, I'm not that smart. But I showed him that I got it from here, from the writings of Moses. Leviticus. I got it from here. And then to bring out all the extra things that 
God saw fit not to necessarily put it in the Bible because he wasn't furnishing us a, 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 a manual for the continuum of the system, but enough through prayer and the discipline of study and, as, and in the passage of time, more information is coming to light uh, as more ancient writings are coming, uh, being translated and then in the field of archaeology too, things, uh, physical evidences are coming out that when you put it all together, you can see how elaborate it was. You know, when I do all this, after I, when I did this live, after I went through it really fast because of time, I'd be out of breath. I'd be like, and I said, okay, can you all remember that? Because apart from Christ, okay, who is, you know, whose person and ministry is the fulfillment of this, uh, if you don't want to believe Christ, then you have to do it this way. And you have to be really sure that what you just saw me do was correct. And there was a lot more that can be said and done. And then besides, you have to get a real Jewish guy. I'm not Jewish, say. Eh? And you've got to get a real Jewish priest. Not James here. Yeah, yeah. And you've got to get a real sacrifice and, you know, and on and on. And uh, this one uh, family that I was ministering to many years ago, a Jewish family, that was in their home. And... Um, was there, and boy, did they rake me up and down about Jesus in this and that. And then, of course, I guess they enjoyed it so much, they invited me back the following week. And so I showed up, and again, and then another week. And then eventually they ran out of things to, you know, rake me up with. But I talked about the Day of Atonement. And uh, they said that, uh, you know, their sons, went to a religious yeshiva school, you know, Jewish school. And uh, he, they said, well, he's coming here, and he's going to answer you all these questions you talked about. Uh, David Tolman and the blood and Jesus. And he, uh, so he showed up, he came, and then I went to the house, and we all sat around, and I showed this film. I showed this. And I remember the mother looking at her son. She goes, okay, now go ahead. Show him what he's wrong. And he said, Mom, I, I was never taught that. I don't know that. She goes, what do you mean? I spent all that money in the school and they never taught you this? And then they started fighting. <laughs> I had to, you know, put it all out. <laughs> well, the whole thing was is that they were taught man-made stuff, not God's word. And the good news, of course, the whole family came to Christ, so... You know, it was quite a quite a challenge here. But why blood? I mean, you know, you know, we always talk about that. I heard all the you know things that we said this morning in the reading. Blood. Why blood? Well, D. L. Moody. I think some of you might be familiar with him, an evangelist of the 19th century. He made this uh, interesting uh, statement. He said, "I must die, or have somebody to die for me. If the Bible doesn't teach that, it doesn't teach anything." And that is where the atonement of Jesus Christ comes in. The, the, the whole idea here, what it is of substitution. Why blood in a sacrifice? Well, the entire scriptures, the word of God, God, from Genesis to Revelation, is leading and showing that this day is so important. Uh, the shedding of blood. There's always blood for the remission of sin. It's always there because blood is the highest cost uh, that man can offer. And so you have all this brought out here. Now, a lot of people, 
Oh, well, let me put it this way. How many, when was the last time you all had devotions in the book of Leviticus? I jokingly say, and then some people got all offended, but I'll just throw it out because I know you guys love me and I can say anything. <laughs> Boy, am I bold, ain't I? It's the book where your pages are still stuck together. <laughs> Leviticus. Well, no. What happens, Leviticus is kind of difficult for a lot of people because all it deals with what? The sacrifices and, the sh and, and blood sacrifices and then the ceremonies and all this. And some folks find it difficult to say, well, what does that mean to me? You know, uh, how am I, what am I supposed to get out of it? I think it's great because it's in picture form of what is fulfilled ultimately in the person of Christ and his whole work. I often challenge people in, when I would teach evangelism, Jewish evangelism, but I would say, listen, well, uh, if someone, if you had some Jewish folks coming to your house, let's say, and they wanted to know about Christ, and you were all excited. And then that morning when they showed up, and for some reason you looked at your Bible, and you noticed that your New Testament portion of your Bible suddenly disappeared. You know, it was all gone. Or it was all of a sudden, it was translated, you know, it was in a different language that you can't read. But the Old Testament was clear. Can you still share the gospel? The good news? Yeah, some people say, well, I guess. Yeah, because you have it all there in picture form and, and all the excitement. And, you know, I, I would say, well, what do you do? What do you do? Someone says, I would call you. Uh, but it's, it's all there. But let me give you a verse here. If you can't remember all the different sacrifices that are there, remember Leviticus 17, verse 11. It's the next chapter after the Day of Atonement. Because no doubt... Uh, you know, the Day of Atonement with this ritual that uh, you just saw as is laid out in that chapter and then all the different features that was connected with it. Uh, no doubt people will say, well, what does that all mean? What is it all about? Well, Leviticus 17, 11 says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given, the Lord speaking now, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh atonement for the soul. See, atonement is the Hebrew word that simply means covering. And that's all it did. It didn't really remove it per se forever, but it was a covering of their sins. And it had to be done yearly and then maintained with the daily sacrifices, the monthly sacrifices, and, and, and on and on, the shedding of blood. But that is the key. If you kind of look at this verse like a hub, and then all the different sacrifices, the burnt offering, the peace offering, the trespass offering, you know, they're all listed there. Those are like the spokes around the hub. But this is the key here. Okay, this is the key. Leviticus 17, 11. Now let me transport you to the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 9. Okay, Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, as it was read this morning, uh, really brought a lot of clarity to understanding there. As you, as you're turning there, or if you're not, you know, if you're still getting there, the uh, Hebrews, of course, you know, uh, the writer is presenting how what is presented in the Old Testament was good, you know, because it came from God. It was good. It was good. I mean, you know, wow, Israel was all excited about it, uh, even though it wasn't eternal. I mean, atonement, for example, is not, a, is not a redemption, you know, it was just a covering. But it was good. It was something that the Lord himself provided. 
when you read Hebrews, you find that everything was what? In Christ, better. Better, because it's, not, it's just not only good, it's better because it's all what? Fulfilled. And so picking up in verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 9. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went also into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But the second, but into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of, of the people. Now, if you could picture in your mind, you're going to have an individual come to do the tabernacle to display for you. I think you'll notice, and I'm sure he'll bring it out, that you know the, the tabernacle in the wilderness was a tent. And you had the outer court where you had the great altar where the sacrifices were made. And then in that outer court, you also had the labor where the ceremonial washings were done. And then within this big tent complex, you had like this little little tent inside. And it was divided into two sections. The first section was called the holy place. And the priest could... Uh, you know, can minister in the outer court and then also in that first chamber. And in that chamber that uh, was, you had the uh, table of showbread, where you had the 12 loaves of bread representing the tribes of Israel. And then on the opposite side of the wall, you had the seven-branch oil lamp called the menorah. That was the only source of light in that room. And then in that same chamber, you had an altar of incense where the priest who lot it had fallen the privilege of applying the incense which represented the prayers of the people and you know of all the uh, duties of the tabernacle and later the priest the most coveted duty was to apply the incense on the altar of, of incense because they represented the prayers and it was in close proximity to the holy of holies because there would be a veil separating that first chamber from the second chamber that we read here in verse 7, where the high priest answered alone, and that was the Kodesh HaKodeshim, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was located, and also the lid on top of the covenant, which called the Mercy Seat. And so we're told that he would go in there, but he had to offer a sacrifice for himself, and then he would also have to go back in there to offer the sacrifices that were offered on behalf of the people. Uh, try to imagine what the priest must have felt like having to go in there. Okay, now everybody knew what that you can't see God and live. I mean, you know, just go in there like that. But boy, when he went in there, I mean, what if, all he had in his hand was that bowl with the blood in there. Did he go to Bible college? Did he go to a seminary? Does he know all the implication of all of that blood and what it all meant? No, he just simply said, ah, this is what the Lord wants. Okay, and he went in there. And he knew that the only thing that was keeping him alive is what he had in his hand, that blood. Think of that impact of that, that whole sense there. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit, this, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. See, at that period, you had to have the priests, you know, it was all set up there. But now look what happened in verse 11, what we're told. But Messiah, or Christ, the Greek word, being come a high priest of good things to come, 
by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. The tabernacle in the wilderness, and then later the temple that was built in Jerusalem, was a type, was a shadow. It was simply following the blueprint of what Moses saw in heaven, the layout of the setup of the uh, of God there. And now in verse 12, you have what I contend to be the New Testament cousin to Leviticus 17.11. There's a lot of that in the, in the Bible, which I like to do. You know, the Old Testament, and then there's always some counterpart in the... I mean, the Old Testament is a counterpart in the New Testament, and I call it the cousin. Verse 12, I believe, is the cousin. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, Christ, okay, he entered in once into the holy place. Now, notice this phraseology here. Having obtained atonement for us, right? Atonement? A covering? which was the Old Testament, which was a good thing. But with Christ's ministry, what did he obtain? Eternal redemption for us. Which one would you rather have? Atonement or eternal redemption? <laughs> That's such an easy question, you know. Many of my Jewish friends say, what do, you, what do you think? What do you think? I said, well, you see the value. You see why this is important. You see how this all, what was done in the Old Testament in, in, with this particular observance culminates with the person of the Christ, the Messiah, who was promised to come. It's all there. He is the perfect sacrifice. It was his blood that was shed. Now let's close out our time a little bit here. Or I could keep going, brother, whatever you want me to do, okay? You know, I had the privilege as a non-Jewish man to go to a, attend to a rabbinical school in Chicago. I did grow a beard one time. It used to be up here, but then it fell down here, and now it's all gone. But uh, I grew, you know, I went to a rabbinical school where I studied their language, and I also studied their mannerisms. And I think in jest. I don't think they really meant it, but it felt good anyway. They, offered, they asked that I should consider becoming a rabbi. I said, but I believe in Jesus Christ. He goes, well, that's wonderful. You got the best of both worlds. I said, no, it doesn't work that way, sir. No, no, no. Uh, but, uh, but I studied. I had to work hard, of course, because you know I had to, you know, really uh, adapt myself to it. And they really treated me royally. I mean, they were really kind, and they really went out of the way so that I could fully, fully understand where they're coming from. And you'd be amazed how we could look at the same passage together, the Word of God, and we see two different things in it. To me, it was an illustration of what the Scripture teaches, that unless the Spirit of God illuminates you, you know, shows you, you ain't going to see truth. You could just read it. But unless God is working and making it come alive in your heart and mind, uh, it's not going to happen. It doesn't work. But I seen it there, and they were very gracious. And uh, so I studied rabbinical theology. I got, uh, what is it, 18 volumes, I think, on my shelf. <laughs> and I read a lot of it, but at least I could see what was done, what was said, and how they deviated from the Word of God, and then some places where they actually agree with the Word of God, but it didn't mean anything to them. But one of the things that I found very uh, striking was that the festivals there that the ancients always looked at everything that's found in the Old Testament in Scripture, 
was messianic in origin. In other words, they saw something in regard to the Messiah, to the, to the, to the one who was to come. That nothing was just simply said for the sake of just saying it. Nothing was given uh, for the sake of just observing it so that people could just get together and eat and what this and that. There was always some kind of a divine purpose and design to it. And so, on one occasion in the rabbinical writings, it lists and records this discussion among the rabbis and students and stuff. And they were trying to determine which of the seven observances would Messiah most likely come. Because as they do today, some of them, as they observe through the Passover or the Day of Atonement or the Feast of Tabernacle, by the way, it comes five days later, the Feast of Tabernacle, you know, they go through it. And they always anticipate that suddenly the Messiah will suddenly appear so that what they're doing ritualistically will suddenly be met with reality. You know? It will be a real thing because the Messiah will come. They will see him for all that it represented. And so you can imagine why you grow a beard so you can pull, you know, you can go back and forth like that. But anyway, they're having fun. They're going back and forth. And so eventually two schools emerged two schools as to they presented their arguments. The first school felt that the Messiah would most likely come or should come at Passover, which is the first of the seven observances, Passover. Because the theme that undergirds the Passover is redemption, right? The picture of redemption. And you know the story in Exodus, Egypt. The children of Israel are in Egypt. They're in bondage. And God now was going to redeem them out. And it became a picture. And thus, the establishment of the lamb that came into the house, dwelt for four days, then it was slain, and then the blood applied on the two-story doorposts and the upper lintel door. And then the, uh, the, uh, the Lord saying, when I see the blood, I will pass over. So it became an important practice uh, and observance, Passover, redemption. And so the, Messiah, the, the rabbi said, that's the one that the Messiah would most likely come because he's always looked as the redeemer who would come. And so they argued their case back and forth. And so they thought they won, right? But then another school, <laughs> they argued and said, well, that's not bad. But we think that the Day of Atonement would be the most preferential day for the Messiah to come. Just think about it. Wow. The high priest, one man alone, after the ceremony that he goes through, entered into the Holy of Holy, into the presence of God, and offered one sacrifice that brought, uh, what? An atonement, a reconciliation of God taking the initiative to reconcile sinful man back to himself. Wow! And that became a picture of what Messiah would do, not only for Israel, but for the entire world, all the people. Wow, I mean, can you imagine? So on the Day of Atonement, which is the most solemn, most holy day in their calendar, that would be the day that the Messiah would most likely come. And they argue back and forth. Right? The Day of Atonement, the sacrifice, and then the goat bearing the sins of the people as a picture being led away into the wilderness and the people looking at it and jeering at it, be God, be God with you. Okay, and the sins being led out as far as the east is from the west. That's what that's where the term comes. And they would see the goat eventually disappear, and that became a picture for Israel to 
to know how God now viewed their sins. It would never come back to them. They would not you know, see it and remember it no more. So, which school was right? This is the fun part. This is what the rabbis, this is where we all have fun. We all sit around and we go, and then we start arguing with each other, you know. And then we start appealing to previous authorities of other rabbis from different periods and what they said, and the books are piling up, and we're all... Who's right? Who's right? Well, you come to the New Testament, and now you're in the Gospel of John. Okay? John, chapter 1. Okay? John, chapter 1, verse 29. And so here Jesus approaches his cousin, Yohanan ben Zechariah, John, the son of Zechariah. Remember his father, Zechariah, was that priest that had that once-in-a-lifetime privilege of what? Applying the incense on the altar of incense, the prayers. I mean, you know, so John, though he was a, a priest, his father was a priest, his mother was a descendant of Aaron, but he wasn't functioning as a priest, even though he was a card-carrying priest, okay? He, was a, he, he started to serve as a prophet. And Mao, in the New Testament, of course, nobody really liked prophets too much. I mean, you know what prophets are like, right? You know, they had this nasty knack of telling you what you know to be true, and that's why you want to kill them and hate them. You know, we know, we know. Priests, oh, we love them because they just go through the motion. You know, a priest, boy, that's, that's job security. You just show up and you punch in, punch out, and that's it, you know, your job. Everybody loves priests. But here, John doesn't even take advantage of such a privilege. He's out in the wilderness, dressed a little weird, eating strange food, and he's baptizing, preparing a way for the Lord. And so Jesus approaches that stony banks of the Jordan River, and when John saw him, what did he say? John sees Jesus coming unto him and said, now notice the phraseology, be in the crowd there. Behold the Lamb of God, which take away the sin of the world. Now, what is he saying there? When you think of Lamb of God, what festival comes to your mind? The Lamb of God. Lamb. Which one? Passover. The Passover. But now when you hear the phrase who takes away the sin of the world, what ceremony comes to your mind? Remember? The David Atonement, the scapegoat? So by one sweeping statement, John is saying, This one who is coming, this one here, he is the redeemer who is reconcile who's going to reconcile the entire world by what he's going to do. He is the fulfillment of Passover and the Day of Atonement. That's just one example. You can just see all the other ones with the other festivals. And they argue left and right. And here in the New Testament, you have a Jewish man named Yohanan John making the sweeping statement showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of those two festivals, and especially this one here. This one here. Well, I just want to leave that with you. Be mindful of the fact that many of our Jewish friends will be observing a day of atonement today, tomorrow, okay? But there's no atonement. 
Oh, they'll, they'll observe and acknowledge, but there is no atonement. Why? Because there is no sacrifices being offered. There is no shedding of blood. There isn't any priest, high priest, officiating these ceremonies. And in Jerusalem, there is no temple there. There's an Islamic structure on the site where many believe was where the temple was once located. So they'll have a day of atonement, but no atonement. So you see how it's important to recognize and always give thanks, as we had done this morning. Keep this in mind. Not just this weekend, but every gathering together to remember the importance of Christ's body being broken and his blood being shed for the remission of our sins. Now, you have any questions you'd like to ask me before we close in prayer? Man, I'm getting good. No questions. No. <laughs> okay, I'll take the first question. I'll take the first question. Okay, I'll take the second question. I'll take the second question. <laughs> All right. Avail yourself to the magazine because um, if you go online of Friends of Israel, we have a lot of articles there. We have a lot of resources of information that you may want to avail yourself to. And to add more information about the festivals and all the other features as well uh, that we make available to all the people, you know, God's people and others uh, who are interested in what God is doing these days uh, there in Friends of Israel. Again, thank you so very, very much. Uh, what I'd like to do, brother, if I may, uh, since I got the live priest with me here, if we get any of the young people, anybody, would like to take a picture or a rattle? Yeah. And then I put it in my newsletter or I share it with my fellow colleague staff, friends of visual. And I go, here's the priest who came alive. Look, here we are. All righty. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for this time that we've had together to collectively come together to worship you in spirit and in truth. Seal to our hearts, bring to our remembrance the things that we have seen, what we have read, what we have sung, and that, Lord God, that we'll always meditate upon these precious words. Thank you, Lord God, for who you are, for all that you have done, and what you yet are doing in our lives, and what is yet to come to pass. We're so grateful, Father, for the privilege. And so now, Father, dismiss us with thy blessing and kindness, and we always give you thanks. In Jesus' precious name, amen.